Welcome to Love in the Time of COVID-19. Join host Sissy Sierro, a distracted creative who is finally getting it together, and a chorus of friends, family, neighbors, strangers, and colleagues sharing poignant, honest, humorous, and sometimes harrowing accounts of life, loss, love, and restoration during the pandemic. The podcast series mission is to create a welcoming space for a new community, one we never knew we needed. So pull up a lawn chair, at a safe distance, of course, and listen to the stories about ourselves and each other. I'm Sissy Sierro, and I'm glad to welcome you to episode four, Reset. We'll listen to stories of situations perhaps not unlike your own, a collage of lives, circumstances, and businesses reset and resetting during the global pandemic and social upheaval. Reset, an essential invitation we can't refuse because we're already there. The initial question of why and how did we get here has morphed into the big reset. We're deep in it now. Hard to miss the headlines, blog posts, songs, multimedia projects, and team meetings, all focusing on defining the indefinable new global reality. The alchemy of reset is the juice, the propellant, permission to shapeshift, conjure, and reimagine our lives, our beliefs, from the deeply personal and private to society's mass consciousness. It moves us forward, even while disequilibrium shifts perceptions at each step, cajoles us not to grasp for the familiar, to reach instead for affinity and unity. In this episode, along with contributors' stories, I'll introduce you to Lee Hurst for a conversation about her resets during the pandemic. Lee is the founder and executive director of the Feel Your Boobies Foundation and has a book coming out in the fall entitled Say Something Big, Feel Your Boobies, Find Your Voice. She's also a relationship manager at Training Pros Inc. and most importantly, mother of two young boys. I'll let you know how to get your stories to me at the end of the show. Let's get into episode four, Reset. So my guest today is Lee Hurst. Lee, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's so great to have you. This episode, Reset, has been something I've been thinking about for the last couple of episodes because it runs through everything we do, of course. Would you like to start with how it was for you at home with your kids, going from being a full-time business person and also running your foundation to being full-time mom, cook, caregiver to two young children? Yes, with, without much preparation or warning, uh, for sure, yeah. Um you know, it took a little bit of time to navigate into it, as I'm sure most people would say. There was a higher level of anxiety around it in the first couple of weeks because trying to figure out how you were going to balance having the kids home with all of your normal priorities with housework and work itself um, was hard. Yeah. So I think it took me maybe two or three weeks to settle into the idea that uh, luckily have a very flexible work situation with both my job at training pros as well as running the foundation. So that gave me the ability to sort of shift things around. However, I really like to work and I'm a sort of type A perfectionist. So I think the thing that helped me settle into it was just that basically to step back and say, you know, what's the downside of stepping out of work for a little bit? And really it just was probably not getting through the things that maybe weren't 
all that important anyway, or sacrificing some income that I might be able to make if I was full throttle during that time. And neither one of those things seemed all that paramount to me, especially when thinking about the kids and looking at it through the lens of the kids and feeling like this is really a time when peace and pattern within the home is important, making sure they feel you know, loved and cared for and safe and... And consistent. Yeah. And having it be consistent for them, of course. Right. And not feeling like, you know, every time they look at mom, she's staring at the computer screen. And so we all sort of settled in a little bit. The homeschooling part added another layer of stress to it all. And I know many parents felt that way, just trying to figure out how to then be a teacher as well. Yeah. And how old are the kids? So what kind of teaching, you know, did you have to do? Where were they at age-wise? So my kids are young. I have two boys and they were in second and third grade and we didn't have any online curriculum. And and then certainly by virtue of their age, um, they weren't really capable, regardless of how well designed the lessons were, they weren't really capable of Mm self-sustaining. And also support the parents and trying to actually have, you know, their professional lives or whatever they have to do too, at least for part of the day, I would think. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like another job to sort of figure out the be helpful to the kids at that age. Um, And that was a curious period of time too, just in watching an unexpected sort of way, watching how my two kids navigated um, the homeschooling model. I feel like I've learned a lot about them in general, just watching what they choose to spend their time doing has been sort of eye-opening in a way that you maybe wouldn't have been able to see, you know, had life gone on the way it was before COVID. What kind of what kind of surprised you the most about that? That's so interesting. They spent less time on devices than I expected. In general, I found that they found their way into the garage and found tools or old pieces of wood or whatever and started just playing with it. Got their bikes out, learned how to take the chain off their bike, kind of got their hands dirty in the yard with me. And I don't know, it almost felt like the way you and I probably grew up where you just sort of like find stuff to do for a summer day, you know? It feels as if the kids were trying to have a completion, like or hands on something, something they could control. That's what strikes me. It's like they could control that. They could take the chain off the bike. They could get a piece of wood and bang it. They could help mom in the garden. It was something they could see and touch and make real, you know, in, in such an unreal situation. Absolutely. And I also think, so my older son has ADHD. I asked him why he felt like homeschooling was going so well. And he said, well, I just feel like the whole time I'm at school, I'm just telling my body to, you know, focus and stay basically, in my words, um, stay on task and stay on the traditional schedule and morph into what's expected in a school, traditional school schedule, you know, in comparison when he doesn't have to fight that all the time. He had energy to explore and he had energy to be creative with the way he was um, spending his time in a way that he couldn't have energy for when he had to come home and just be like, oh, I'm so tired from doing that all day, you know? That's a, a really interesting aspect of a reset. Yeah, reset topic in mind. I think for me, it gave me a reset on how to think about him, you know, how to understand him better and appreciate the ways he can apply all of the good things that come along with being wired that way. Thinking of it as something that is, you know, difficult, problematic in a negative lens. So that's been a good thing for me as a parent. To hear that and just uh, self-recognition and for kids, you know, that age to 
reach out, feel different parts of themselves, to be able to learn with you and be with you and outside. That sounds like it really was kind of a silver lining in some weird way, you know? And that and stripping away all of the uh, orcs and this and that, and uh, there was value in, in removing that busyness for the kids too. You know, when talking to someone who doesn't have small children and, and is a single mom balancing two jobs, they might not understand why I can't do X, Y, or Z, or that I've said no to X, Y, or Z. So getting confident in your own choices for saying no and sticking to it is really the only way you can achieve that type of simplicity for yourself without worrying whether or not that makes sense to somebody else. Do you understand what I mean? Yes, I do. Um, a reset for me is getting to what is more um, and more essential, really paring things down, looking at it from a different perspective, having acceptance uh, for the way I work now in this really weird new normal. Early on, before I probably hit a stride, I sort of was wondering why I was struggling with it so hard because as I've mentioned to you, you know, being a breast cancer survivor and being diagnosed at a young age um, and having to really figure out how to navigate something that is completely out of your control. And, you know, I, I felt like one of my biggest lessons learned coming out of that back in the earlier years was figuring out how to live with that idea that my life is different now, that you have to live with some level of uncertainty and um, you have to move forward with that in the back of your mind. But for whatever reason, during COVID, I felt those same feelings because there was no endpoint confirmation or facts around whether we would get sick or my parents would get sick or you know, all of those worrisome things. Um, and I struggled to apply the same things I had learned previously to this scenario and that frustrated me. I wondered why, why you've been on this path before. Um, and I think I just had to sort of submit to the fact that it's just hard. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Lee Hurst after this. To get the latest episodes, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at hashtag loveinthetimeofcovid-19 podcast or at Sissy Sierra's Voice ATX. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So, Lee, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about your Feel Your Boobies Foundation and specifically the Minority Outreach Campaign, which is hashtag are you doing it? Yeah, definitely. It's very exciting. Um, and thank you for asking about it. So I started the foundation, uh, Feel Your Boobies Foundation, after my own diagnosis in 2004. I was 33. I felt the lump for some time. Um, it went undetected by doctors until I pointed it out during my annual exams. For the most part, was told, eh, it's probably nothing to worry about. I was a marathon runner, no family history. So I wasn't really concerned about it. And then fast forward to finally being diagnosed. Uh, at the same time, I was just for fun making a t-shirt that said, feel your boobies. And I put up a one page website and it went viral and started selling, uh, thousands of t-shirts out of my garage, um, you know, while I was still in treatment and quite honestly, enter entering a form of depression, I would say. Um, so these t-shirts took off clearly had gone past just my friend Jane and Chicago. So initially I donated all the money out to selected organizations. And then little by little, we created a nonprofit. And I realized that, you know, while I was supportive of these other organizations that I had chosen to donate to, they hadn't really reached me. 
my whole thought around Feel Your Boobies was how do we reach women who were like me, integrate this message into their day-to-day life to do a self-breast exam. And and in fact, I didn't do a self-breast exam. That's not how I found my lump. And that's not how the majority of women find their own lumps. So I just noticed it. I started to really hone in on what was going on with Feel Your Boobies and decided to start my own nonprofit because I felt like we actually had a mission. We had something we were doing that was different than what was out there through other nonprofits. And so that's how the foundation began. And um, and that's evolved into kind of what you've asked me to talk about, which is media, the use of media to spread our message. So we're one of the largest um, breast cancer organizations on Facebook. And by and large, for the past, we've been in business for 16 years. I'd say up until two years ago, we operated out of my garage. And yet we have nearly 400,000 followers on Facebook. And at one point, we were the largest cause back when causes existed on Facebook. We were the head over a million cause followers. Um, Oh, my God. Over a million? But yes, very impressive given the grassroots nature of it and the skeletal structure of it, as well as the small budget we have to do what we do. And really, we're on the forefront of leveraging social media for the use of entrepreneurship, social marketing kind of thing. So anyway, we've kind of kept in that vein of using media as the best way to sort of intersect with young women. But of late, we've really focused strategically on a media campaign that targets young, um, at-risk African-American women. And we did that because Black women um, actually have different statistics around breast cancer than um, non-Black women. And so they have a higher mortality rate once diagnosed And they're also diagnosed at a younger age in general than uh, non-Black women. Higher mortality rate. Did you, what was, why was that? Because of prevention or? Well, some of it's genetic. Yeah. Some of it is the form of cancer that they're diagnosed with, which uh, is called triple negative. But other, other factors, of course, are very complicated, but may have, you know, access to healthcare and some other um, factors like that may be that they're diagnosed at a later stage. And so we got grant funding to launch a campaign that included both traditional media, meaning billboards, bus shelters, bus wraps, as well as social media, Facebook, Snapchat, et cetera. And we were able to connect with five local young Black women who were diagnosed under the age of 40, all of whom found their own lumps. Um, And we did a photo shoot with them and a, a video shoot that was scripted. And the campaign was called, Are You Doing It?, And the hashtag, as you mentioned, was, are you doing it um, as well? Um, We focused on providing those stats in sort of a well-designed, aesthetically pleasing kind of way. Our initial take on the metrics around the campaign put us up around 6.2 million impressions. That includes engagement through social media, sharing likes, that sort of thing, as well as visits to the website where there's a landing page, which you can find at areyoudoingit.com, which shares each of the women's stories. We provided information about Pennsylvania's free mammogram program through various health providers here so that they could navigate quickly to the right resources if they found a lump so they could get free testing. And we plan to expand that program next year to reach not just low-income Black women, but a broader spectrum of Black women, as well as um, add some non-Black survivors to the campaign and target a more general audience as well. So yeah, I'm very proud of that. I think it underscores kind of the the overall approach and sensibility of what we're trying to do and and the power that media has to tell stories and to engage people with a message, um, and in our case, a call to action that can actually save your life. So very proud of the campaign. 
you know, I think with passion, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You can find a way to make it happen. Such important work. It's so amazing to me, you know, as a cancer survivor, too. I really, really, really appreciate your, when I go to your website, it just, it gives me chills. It's so beautiful. Feelyourboobies.org, right? Uh, it's actually feelyourboobies.com. Dot com. Okay. And then it's hashtag, are you doing it? And there's also a landing page, are you doing it.com as well? That's right. Yep. Okay. Are you doing it.com? Well, Lee, this has been so fantastic to have you on my show. I, I can't tell you, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting this episode out. Um, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your stories. And I really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, asking me such insightful questions and giving me an opportunity to share my experiences. Lee's passion carries the power of her focus and intention. Her story of resetting her life during COVID with the courage to go further into self-acceptance allowed her to claim time, space, and focus to serve the needs of the moment, the well-being, and a new understanding of the most important people in her life, her kids. Her life's profound reset to turn a battle with cancer into a conscious choice to transform a simple t-shirt message into a foundation with a life-saving mission. Now a story from one of our contributors on the East Coast who's a writer and entrepreneur. The story is read by University of Texas student Mason Marriott Voss. With each article I read, every person I speak with, the value and breadth of a reset went flying off on a new trajectory. We're all thinking about and trying to plan for resetting systems and processes for what could be next. But I'm equally interested in how my thought process has changed how my inner conversation has taken on a new tenor. This could be the opening I've privately been desiring for a long time. My business and the economy, well, it's more than a bit of a guessing game. Personally, and for society as a whole, the objective is to establish a new equilibrium. How do I fit into that? The brave new consciousness among political, economic, social, and environmental systems have to fit together more urgently now than ever. Can we move past insular, macro, and microeconomies? Can this shakeup coalesce in a collective, universal momentum to aggressively address climate change? Can reset solutions create new industries, processes, and economies? Ultimately, the only limit is imagination and the will to make a new way forward. Here's a conversation between two partners and one of their sons about their collective and individual resets, ones of love, protection, and family, sheltering together in Austin, Texas. David, a writer, reflects on the gifts of precious moments and unforgettable connections as the three find balance and camaraderie in the simple things. Noah, David's son and second-year law student from New York, arrives for spring break and shelters in place with David and his partner Joe. Time out of place frames new perspectives on his life. Joe, an attorney, connects the dots of the three lives as they form a new family unit around the unexpected extended stay of David's beloved son. I join the guys for an early evening chat, from a safe distance of course, in their Clarksville home. Joe and I live uh, in Austin. Hi, I'm Joe. Uh, and I'm, I'm David. I'm Noah. And that's Noah. <laughs> I ask what inspired the trio to reach out to me to share their story for the podcast. Tequila. <laughs> 
You know, uh, I would say Joe and I were talking with Noah and we've all kind of been talking about our different uh, experiences within COVID and we just discovered that our story is probably very similar to other stories. That prompted me to talk to Joe and to talk to Noah as well. Ours is uh, a singular story, but it's also uh, a universal story. So that's when I asked David to tell me the story of what happened. It was simple. Noah was scheduled to fly down to Austin already for spring break. Three days into it that he was here for a while. Everything's normal. And then sort of two or three days in, my dad was like, you were like ready to be here for a few months or a few weeks. <laughs> it was kind of at that point, like I hope that you understand that's what's gonna happen. And I was like, yep, yeah, I mean, that's is what it is. And so I've been here since. I wanted to know how Noah was feeling about what happened and what he left behind. Um, there were just like a few law school events I had canceled, you know, vi visiting. It was great that I was here, but visiting my brother, seeing, um, going to my, my girlfriend's formal, like, we also had our own formal that was being canceled, so it was, it was kind of that, and sort of the uncertainty of like where we were, how we were going to do the next uh, next few weeks, basically, because at that time it wasn't clear sort of how the semester was going to progress and how it would end up, um, how it would affect other things. And then I asked Joe how he's been doing. I'm doing fine. Actually, it was really kind of neat because from a professional standpoint, I'm a lawyer, so my life for the last 29 years that I've been a lawyer is measured on six minute increments. And my calendars are color coordinated. So all of a sudden, you know, March comes around and there's this idea that we're not gonna go to work thinking we're just not gonna be there for a few days. And then all of a sudden, all the colors from April just go from purple, pink, blue for depositions, red, all to very unsympathetic beige. You know, just the <laughs> color of the calendar. But, but the thing about it is, is that we are so fortunate. And so I think that we've lived in a place where we are definitely disrupted, but extremely happy. You know, all of a sudden we've had this ability to spend so much time with David's son, Noah. And for David and Noah to be together after not being in the same house for three months at a time, probably since he was a kid, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's great in that the likelihood of Noah and me and Joe being together throughout the year might be four times a year. For 48 uh, hours. You know, for 48 <laughs> hours. So, well, you know, one of which might be the holidays, whether that's a Thanksgiving and or a Christmas. You know, but schedules being what schedules are, we're all very, very busy. and counting those moments uh, as precious. So being here together really harkens back to the time when like Noah was in like middle school and high school where we would spend the summers together. You know, having that long six weeks to two months. You know, it's interesting to uh, uh, vacillate between being a parent and also being like, oh, Noah's like one of my best friends. So mm -hmm. therefore he's also an adult so he can take care of himself. Well, COVID kind of changes a lot of that in that one, as a parent, you become a little bit more protective or we all, but we, he protects me. Like, oh, where are we going today? You know, Noah and I stayed in the house for six weeks without going anywhere. 
Uh, Joe is the only contact to the outside world. He's the only one who went grocery shopping. He's the only one who did anything. I was the emissary for the house. Oh, wait, wait, stop right there. Tell me why. Tell me what, what that was about. So why did you both stay in the house for six weeks? The truth is, is that we were, we have been highly conscious. Have one person who will constantly go out and be that, that person who goes to the grocery Canary store. Canary in the coal mine. And I'm That's very, right. I'm very <laughs> But very, very cognizant. <laughs> On the flip side, what Joe's not saying is that he desperately wanted to get out of the No, house. that's not true. But that is why I would go. <laughs> no, that's not true. I mean, I, I think I went out knowing that David's just more susceptible because he has asthma and Noah has a, a little bit of asthma too, right, Noah? Right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> my lungs aren't amazing. <laughs> but even then, it was just running to the grocery store, which in and of itself was an amazing experience. It's amazing wearing a mask in public. It is incredibly frustrating to be wearing a mask because that person you're next to that you just want to acknowledge, that you just want to give them a smile to say, I'm sorry I bumped in front of you, or hey, how you doing? They can't see the smile. And so that was the thing. It wasn't the experience in terms of, oh, I'm afraid to go to the grocery store. It was that that unspoken communication you have with everybody in public that you lost because a part of your face was covered that would usually be one of the more expressive portions of your face. I, I want to say on the flip side though, we had some, during that six week period specifically, we had some walks that we kind of took with the dogs and us three would go on our walks, like made it a daily routine. And even though we did have the masks on, even the verbal communication of how's it going, how you doing today, stuff like that, I think that like I appreciated that a lot more because I felt like we lost it during that period. So, but I, I really enjoyed, and I like that generally about coming to Austin and other places and kind of getting that community type of feel that, um, that I think that we experienced, so that was good. None of us had been on evening walks on a regular basis uh, to meet neighbors like we have in the last three months. We see people, we wave. I hope that that does not go away when all of this subsides because it's really awesome. So in a matter of the last 75 days, Noah went from having an apartment, if you don't mind me saying, yep. Yep. Noah went from having an apartment in Manhattan to you know, being a law student to coming down here thinking only for five days, but staying for close to 75, um, not seeing his girlfriend there during that time, finishing another year in law school, starting up as an editor on a law journal. Um, his note got published. His note, got, his note in a law note. journal got published, and then also moved on to a summer associate's point and also figure out what he's going to do starting in September of 2021. So in a matter of 75 days, while everybody's life has kind of changed for that time period, his life has changed and solidified for his early professional career. How many people can say that? No, <laughs> no many, one I know. <laughs> and how many people can say that as hard of a time it's been for many, it's been kind of an oddly good time for you, <laughs> baby. No, I don't know. I'm not yeah. gonna speak for you, but I mean, if, if somebody looked at this, they might say that. It, it has worked out for the best, but just like everything, moments of uncertainty, moments of, oh, this is, you know, just your your mind starts playing tricks with it and say, oh, nothing's ever gonna be the same, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble, to, oh, now I'm good again, this feels awesome, and 
I don't know. It's just a lot of fluctuations, but ultimately I think it's worked out for the best, but yeah, it's, it's been weird. These guys have stood with me the whole time because I've definitely had some paranoid moments. Well, you know, I mean, the, the idea that you've got three professionals, you've got one person who's in law school and has to go through finals, you've got one who is an attorney, one who is a writer, and we have found places in our house for each of us to have our own space. Mm -hmm. And so for working space, creative space, whatever, you know, we, we have developed this language of family. We found the ability that every day we could be separate, but every night we were a unit. Every night we had dinner together. We have dinner. Have dinner together. Every night, no matter you know, you know, no matter what time somebody got up, no matter if somebody was in a class, if we come together. And, and I think now I'm trying to figure out why it is that we contacted Sissy in the first place. And I think the reason why was that was the idea that how much Noah had actually managed to ground David and I during this very crazy period. And had he not been here, would we have been as structured and as family-like? And I'm David's partner for nine years, and so and Noah's 25, so, you know, obviously he's, he's had his families. And, but for the last 75 days, you know, we've had that chance every single day to be a family. So I, and I think that's kind of how we reached out to you in the first place because yeah, it's like yeah, that's such a wonderful way to put that. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I think as a as the best family, we really don't hold anything back. I think we're highly polite to one another. You know, we've given everyone the opportunity to have their bad days, weeks, whatever. Fortunately, not all three of us have had them at the same time. <laughs> But allowing, but knowing that, okay, I think that's human and I think it's awesome that we've all been, they, we are all together. We will not forget this and nor should we, this moment in time. Our conversation wrapped up on such a joyful note with so many reasons to be grateful in spite of, or perhaps because of the pandemic. Bonds deepen, simple pleasures and love and appreciation. Precious moments take on a life of their own. David, Joe and Noah, found a beautiful reset. I wish to thank my listeners and storytellers. I hope this episode inspires you to become a contributor on this podcast. Send your voice, your story, because it matters and you need to be heard. This episode's theme has been a steady companion compelling me to explore the alchemy of reset. That alchemy transmutes and strips away the usual, the ritual, the dependable structures that no longer fit or define. Perfect in its imperfection, this moment, leading us to whatever is next. Please join me for the next episode when we talk about what's essential. Talk to you soon.